Welcome to the U-Turn Podcast. This is the place to connect to who you truly are. We're bringing PhDs, experts, and leaders to help you elevate your mindset in your work life and in your love life so that you can see things differently and truly love your world. I'm Ashley Stahl. I'm a career expert, author, and TEDx speechwriter and booker, and I'm excited to bring you in to this week's episode. Okay, U-Turn friends, I'm really excited to bring Laura Belgray onto the show. If you haven't heard of her, she is pure genius. Her writing, her humor, uh, a lot of you maybe have heard of her for creating a company called Talking Shrimp and co-creating a program called The Copy Cure with Marie Forleo. Um, She's an incredible copywriter, but even better, she is uh, author of a book called, and you're never going to forget the name of this book, it's called Tough Titties. (laughs) with the subtitle on living your best life when you're the effing worst. So I'm really excited about this book. And I wanted to have Laura on to just share a little bit about what can we do from a mindset perspective? What can we do in our lives right now, Um, especially as entrepreneurs? And even if you're not an entrepreneur and you're in corporate, like how can you start to navigate these murky little waters that we've all been in? I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've gone on media interviews and they always are like, you know, the great resignation. Like, are you surprised? <laughs> it's like, this is not surprising at all. You know, you no. took an overworked workforce and f- put them in their house with no socializing and an extra hour of work a day and out comes a bunch of mental health issues. So, Laura, <laughs> without further ado, thank you for coming on the show to talk about the tough titties. <laughs> thank you, Ashley. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I love the intro, including the great resignation, because I'm so with you. And that's so much of such a big part of my story in Tough Titties, not resigning, but um, doing what I would call like before there was quiet quitting, I would call it chaotic quitting, where which is just being fired for being lousy at your job. I was so I was just not meant for the workforce, like not meant to be in corporate, not meant to climb a ladder or wear power suits or any kind of suits or get anywhere at 9 a.m. No nine to five, not even a 10 to six was suited for me. So. Okay. So I think a lot of people right now, obviously we're seeing the data that it's like entrepreneur freelancer boom, and it's continuing mm-hmm. to go and it's been going for a while. Um, as a businesswoman who has navigated so many different things also with your mindset, your mental health, um, what would be some of the things you could share with maybe the newer entrepreneur who um, wants to really impact and generate sales and connect with their client while also having boundaries, taking care of themselves? Um, just any message you have for them? Oh, boy. I mean, so many. It depends it depends what they're struggling with in all that. I think a main message of my book is about the power of being you, of truly being yourself unapologetically. And uh, I wouldn't say being unafraid to be disliked because I've never, I've never reached that milestone. I've never been like, I don't give an F what anybody thinks. I would love to be somebody who, you know, can say truthfully, I give zero Fs, but uh, I'm not one. But really, um, so rather than being unafraid to be disliked, accept that someone is not going to like you. 
Maybe mm-hmm. many people won't like you, but it is okay to be disliked. And I have found that um, from from being disliked in like sixth grade, the first chapter of my book is called Dip Fishbone Likes This. And it's about hate following my sixth grade bully on social media years later and finding her to be delightfully basic. But it's also about what she did to me, um, which was just you know, your basic bully fair, like she stole my best friend and kicked me out of my friend group. And I wasn't invited to pizza Wednesdays or to go buy leg warmers, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what really scarred was that feeling of of being disliked. And um, then it turned into this desperate need to fit in for such a long time. And when you are that age and you do learn that lesson, like it's it's not a good lesson to learn, but we most of us do learn it at some point that being disliked, it's a false lesson that being disliked can ruin your life. Mm. Um, you know, it's, and it, I guess biologically or evolutionarily, it is, it's what makes sense. Like being cast out mm-hmm. is death. Um, back in the, you know, in the days when you'd be left on the, I don't know, on the plains to be eaten by a jackal. But um, <laughs> I think that it's something that you, that I've spent the rest of my life trying to unlearn mm-hmm. and remember, which is that when you're an adult, say, being the same and fitting in and blending in is the kiss of death. Mm-hmm. And standing out and being a weirdo and being yourself is where it's at. That mm. is what makes for a strong business, a strong brand, creativity, being yourself. And so it's important to remember that it's okay if one person dislikes you. It's okay if lots of people dislike you. It will happen. Mm-hmm. Anything, anything or anyone or any piece of art, movie, TV show, song, or or person or thought leader that you like to follow online, anything that you love, there is somebody out there who will say, meh, not for me. Or right. like, you're crazy. That person sucks or that song is the worst. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that person or that song is any less great. It just means it's not for everyone, which none yeah. of us can be, right? I know my my um Jewish grandma, she always used to say she had an accent like you could be the best tasting peach, but there's always somebody who doesn't like peaches. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Okay, so as an owner of Very Tough Titties, Laura, I want to know, what does that title mean for you? What is it about? Obviously, it's easy to to say, and I've been thinking about it ever since you emailed me about your book coming out. <laughs> um, and also just the subtitle, like living your best life when you're at, you know, you're the freaking worst. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, just walk me through kind of what it means for someone who maybe picks up the book and they don't jump in and read and they just want to get to understand your intention. Yeah. Um, so tough titties to me, it's something I when I couldn't figure out what my book was, what was the theme, what's the title? I don't know what to call it. Is it like Confessions of a Late Bloomer. Is it New Dork City? Um, I found myself saying one day, I found myself saying tough titties. And I was like, oh my gosh, I say that all the time. I don't even know I'm saying it basically because I'm still 12 and it's something I've always said. And second, because it is the, I consider it the ultimate, sorry, not sorry, the non-apology yeah. for 
saying no to the supposed tos mm -hmm. in life. It's usually in response to like, so-and-so thinks you should do it this way, or, you know, you're going to get in trouble if you don't do this, this, and this. And my response is always, well, tough titties. Yeah. Tough titties. Cause I don't want to, I can't because I don't want to cause tough titties. Mm -hmm. And so, so that has been my attitude always, I think, to the supposed tos in life. And as an adult to like some big supposed tos, like, driving a car. I don't drive, you know, learning to roast a perfect chicken, um, having kids. I don't have kids. I'm not going to have kids. And <laughs> it's something that I said tough titties to a long time ago. And, um, and so as for the living your best life when you're the effing worst, I feel like we're kind of all the worst. I know nobody wants to be the worst and is going to pick it up and say like, oh, this is how to be the worst. It's more of a a call out to all of us who secretly feel like we are the effing worst all the time or sometimes, or who find ourselves saying, I'm so sorry, I'm the worst. Like mm. we, you know, maybe we're petty, we're late, we shit talk people, we gossip, we do all the things that you're not supposed to do as a holy, spiritual, centered, altogether good person. We're just the worst. And I like, those are my people, people mm -hmm. who are kind of the worst. Mm, I love that so much because they're being, I, I feel like in order to be the worst, you kind of have to, I don't want to say offend, but be kind of be out of line. And I think it takes a risk taker to step out of line. And um, so many people are afraid and they people please. So um, mm -hmm. in the book, you talk a lot about, you know, this key to creativity, to business, to self-expression, being yourself, success. Like, can you talk a little bit about like, what is that key for everybody that's listening? Um, and and how can they start to bring more of that into their life? Yeah, I well, I think it is part of it is embracing your flaws, yeah. being okay with them and being out and open about them. Because I, I don't mean you have to get into like vulnerability porn and every day tear yourself down on social media or or fake it and say, you know, oh, I'm really feeling less than about my seven figure launch because I don't feel worthy. Um, because that's vulnerable shit. Yeah. But um, I think showing who you are and admitting to things about you that maybe you're afraid to admit to that you think people might judge, it's such a gift to other people out there. It's kind of like, I liken it to going to a party and seeing somebody who like feeling a little underdressed and then you see someone there wearing jeans. Yeah. Really confidently. And you're like, oh, thank God there's someone here wearing jeans. Now I don't feel so bad. Um, and it gives you permission. So being yourself is really a permission giving thing. It is a gift to other people. It gives them permission to be more of themselves. They feel seen. They feel less alone in the world. And then they in turn pass it on. They're more of themselves. They feel more of themselves around you or just being in your orbit. Yeah. And then they make other people feel more of themselves. And so I think that's Part of the key is just being who you are and not just showing the what you think are the good parts. Yeah. I think the, ba the bad parts are the best parts. Okay. So this feels so relevant if I just go off the beaten path with you into the digital marketing world. Like, yeah. I remember watching Fire Festival and A, I had like <laughs> some friends who were kind of screwed over by Ja Rule and I had no idea. Like my friend <laughs> popped up on the screen and my friend Samuel, my friend's cousin, he was like, I lost all my money. And I'm like, oh my God, Samuel lost his <laughs> money. But anyway, watching ja Fire Festival however many years ago, it really reminded me of the digital marketing space because 
it's all about like the glitz and the glamour and like selling people and using industry names and selling things maybe before you even have them to provide. Sometimes I feel like in the digital marketing space, there's a high likelihood of everybody doing something illegal in order for success. Thankfully, I've been pretty <laughs> on it with my integrity and I move slower in this business for those reasons. Um, maybe it's because I used to work in national security. It's like you can take the woman out of the Pentagon, but like the job <laughs> is still happening. But I don't know. I feel like in the digital marketing space, in the Instagram space, like you said, there's a lot of people who are like, quote unquote, being vulnerable about not making a million dollars on their launch or whatever. And it just feels, um, I feel kind of disenchanted when I look at this mm -hmm. space. And you know what? It brings out my little tough titties vibe, like tough titties, <laughs> like, you know, it's get, get some grounding. Like you're not, everybody's supposed to be rich in 20 minutes and be the hottest thing ever and be a 10 across the board and love and in body and in everything, everything. It just feels like so much pressure, such mm -hmm. a lack of self acceptance. And, uh, and sorry for this rant, Laura, it's like, you just became no, I love it. Of my rant. And I feel like people are, you know, you're a, co you're a copywriter as well. Right. So that's yes. going to make this book even more entertaining because you're such a natural writing, but I feel like there's a lot of people who in the digital space will use something and spin it because that's what marketing is sometimes, right? So if you're a bestseller on Amazon in your category, you know, and let's say you're in like the armpit category. I don't even know what <laughs> category there is on armpit. Right? Like, exactly. This is the medieval. No, yeah. medieval armpit business category. Yes. Yes. <laughs> let's say you're in the medieval armpit business category. <laughs> and it's like, well, shit, there's just a couple other armpit books. So if you got a few subscribers, you're about to be number one bestseller in the armpit category. So people are kind of playing a game, right? Like they're buying their way to the New York Times bestseller list. Like how can mm -hmm. they personally buy 50,000 copies of their own fucking book, right? Like uh -huh. sounds so pissed off and I'm actually not. I'm more just like enamored and I don't talk about it very often, but yeah. um. I remember when my book came out, I was like, I have all the respect in the world for whatever marketing everybody needs to do. And mm -hmm. if my book hits, I want it to be because it does. Like, yes, the end. So um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm imagining that working for someone amazing like Marie Forleo has exposed you to the digital marketing world in such a deep way. And knowing that she has a lot of integrity, nonetheless, you've probably just been around that space doing copy. Oh. Um how has that influenced you when it comes to your authenticity, your values, like being an entrepreneur in the online world? Because I think there's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs listening that are like, I want an online business. I want an eight-figure launch for my course. I'm I'm the best at medieval armpit shaving or like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a rap But you know, and and it's like, Whenever I have business coached someone, I'm like, I'm looking to create a lasting business with you, not a get rich quick business. So I can't take you on if you want to get rich in six months. Like, I want to help you create an actual thing. Um, yeah. What, what messages yeah. do you have for people who maybe don't see those smoke and mirrors, oh. you know, and people who are like number one bestseller on Amazon? It's like, no, you were bestseller in the armpit category. Two <laughs> books, and it doesn't matter. You should always celebrate your accomplishments, right? So it's not like I'm saying this yeah. to be mean. It's just I don't like how people um, aren't being real uh, about oh. what they're doing, and they're using gimmicks. I actually had a TED Talk ad of me going viral on TED and giving this talk, and some guy told me he wanted to create a Fred talk so he could just like use the background of the ED with the red, like <laughs> so, like just for his ad. So, like, can you? <laughs> 
I, like, well, I don't know where I'm going with this. Can you help well, me? Well, <laughs> I am. You are correct that I've been around it for a long time, mm-hmm. steeped in it. And from the very get-go, I was kind of calling out and a p- butting up against all the bullshit I, that I saw. And yes, Marie has always had incredible integrity and like her number one value. And she's, this is for real. I know this because I know her so well as a person, like as a friend, it really is to make people feel safe when they buy from her. And, um, at the same time, she is very into, as am I, like using powerful words that will, she's into persuasion. And so am I, I am very for, as a copywriter, language that makes people that makes people feel good about buying that makes them feel excited that gets them whipped up and gets their desire whipped up never falsely i would never want to hype anything that's that doesn't live up to the hype but so i am pro persuasion and don't think there's anything wrong with that but all the smoke and mirrors out there you are absolutely right there's so much of it um and yes it's like when somebody says I'm number a number one Amazon bestseller, yes, it probably is number one in the medieval armpit business category. Um, m- more like medieval armpit business for women uh, with fibromyalgia. I mean, even more spe- more and more specific than that. And um, I agree that we should celebrate our accomplishments. And success does beget success. So you don't want to be out there all the time being like, my my business is a shit show. I can't make it. I am going bankrupt. I, I feel like if you are a business coach going bankrupt, you don't really need to go broadcast that. Maybe go, maybe go away for a little while. Like go <laughs> or or just say now, you know, having having some struggles right now, but you don't have to be yeah. that that out and about about it. But at the same time, it's just not fair to the public to broadcast something that's totally untrue, which a lot of people will do. Or, you know, when they say, um, just had a $4 million launch, it'll turn out that they got to keep, you know, 30 bucks of that yeah, or, or negative 30 bucks, you know, that they spent 8 million to have the $4 million launch. So don't be fooled by all that and by people's seemingly overnight trajectories. Yes. Um, and also don't be fooled by people who are still talking about how much money they made in courses during a pandemic. It'll always be in italics, like during a pandemic. You know what? That was a major gold rush time yeah. to have a course. Never have you know people seen a windfall like that from course from selling courses as they did during 2020. Yeah. Like if you didn't make great money then, then you blew it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I think a lot of people um they want to create something entrepreneurial. They want to feel capable of creating it. And I want to ask you more about the book because you talk about laziness and you talk about mm. how it's kind of like cholesterol, like good lazy, <laughs> bad lazy. I personally think I'm good lazy, recreationally inclined. Love mm-hmm. to work smart and not hard, but I would love to just get your insight on if you lost everything today mm. and, you know, your book, you know, Tough Titties, it's, I'm just going to say that so many times. It's all about being <laughs> you, right? Yeah. Like, um, 
and and really highlighting who you are, which is what my book always tries to be about. Um, let's say you you start from ground zero. What are a few things you would do in today's world to get your business out there, get your first clients, stand out, and feel authentic um, and carry the things that you've learned with you? Because we're in such a different time than I, yeah. I emailed you in 2015. Like, what a different era. Oof. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, honestly, it's a, it is a tough one because if I lost everything, first of all, I would be flattened. I would be so devastated and feeling so sorry for myself. Be like, forget business. But if I really had to, you know, gun to my head, you've got to start from square one, build a build up a business again. Uh, I guess I would offer something I knew people needed and um, build an email list. I do think that that's that is continues to be where it's at is an email list and. There's a thing about me. I'm so bad at starting from square one when I know what I have to do, what I know what's involved. I was lucky enough to build my business without knowing what I was doing. It was almost by accident. And I wasn't, I didn't set out to build a business. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have the entrepreneur gene that as far as I'm concerned. I never, you know, everybody had a lemonade stand. Yeah, I like to I'd like to sell lemonade when I was a kid. That's not that doesn't <laughs> but if you had told me like um, you, you know, start a business, I would have panicked and said, well, you have to have a big idea for a business. You have to have something that's going to change the world. Don't you have to have like an app or a line of shapewear and, um, and a blueprint and go out to, I don't know, raise money, fundraising, um, see some C level. I don't know what they're even called round one series two, all those things. It would have freaked me out. And I would have said, no, thank you. But now that I know you can start a business with basically an opt-in. Mm -hmm. Which I is uh, which is the term I think everyone probably knows, but just in case, oh, yeah. for when somebody subscribes to your email list. And usually that happens when you offer a free thing that's very valuable and very aligned with your ideal customer. So yes. in the case of the medieval armpits, it could be like a step-by-step -step shaving checklist for your medieval armpit to smell like flowers. Oh, like, yes. Sign up here, opt-in. Yes, that's brilliant. Or to smell yeah. like myrrh or something or mead. <laughs> Frankincense or something. Frankincense. Medieval. Okay, exactly. Like, I want to also ask, like, I have a really big um, email list and I, I went through a massive failure. I think after I originally emailed you, I had a lot of success. I had the $5 million course, you know, but really it was the $2 million course, <laughs> a lot of money, but the yes. $2 million course that had to last me three years. So it just started to, mm -hmm. all of this said, I went up, I went down and as the years went on, and I know this isn't an issue that everyone's might maybe having right now. Um, but it's something that's very real as you go is that I sold a job hunting course to my email list. I generated over half a million emails in like two months. So it was like wow. really I went from being no one to being in your inbox. Yeah. And um, and I'm, you know, I hate when I say being no one, but like nobody knew about my work. Yeah. Um, and so what would be your feedback for the fact that like people's audiences, needs, and realities change? And I feel like people will very easily say, like, survey your email list. So let's say Jenny right now is listening and she's got like 150 subscribers and they're like, 
medieval armpit fanatics. <laughs> and they're just like, I have a medieval armpit and it reeks and I need help. <laughs> and I've subscribed to Jenny's newsletter for healing in this matter. So, I mean, obviously you and I would roll in and just be like tough titties. But anyway, <laughs> if Jenny was like, what do I offer these people? It's been six years since they subscribed for the armpit guide. And now I don't know if their armpit's a problem anymore. Um, but I want to make money and I want to serve and I'm I'm in, I'm excited about it. How would Jenny, and I know 150 people is a smaller amount, so she could probably email each one individually, but let's mm -hmm. say it's a thousand or 10,000 people. Yeah. I feel like we're in a, a world where our e inboxes are so bombarded. It's like we get lost in spam and stuff like that. How how would somebody approach figuring out what to offer their audience? Yeah, um, that's something that I struggle with all the time. Yeah. People are like, you got to be kidding me. You have so many things to offer. People want this from you. They want that from you. And I always kind of feel like, do they? Or mm, I don't feel like giving them that. Or I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't feel like making that. And um, I do think it's useful to survey your audience. What's hard is getting them to take the survey. So you have to right. make it enticing to take the survey. And what I do with my survey is I, I have one that goes out automatically. It's part of my welcome sequence. And so if you sign up for my email, you'll get a series of emails that, you know, just sent to you in a particular order. And one of them says, I think the subject line is bribe you. And the email is all about how I would like to bribe you to take my survey. And in exchange for taking the survey, um, like once you hit submit, I'll send you another email telling you one of the worst things I've ever done. Mm -hmm. And and not as a kid, not not a fake confession, like I really, you know, feel unworthy of my seven figure launch or <laughs> or or like when I was a kid, you know, I stole candy. It's mm -hmm. an it's an adult thing. So people like that and it works pretty well. But I have to do have to ask several times for them to answer a survey. And you can also bribe them to like get on a Zoom with you, um, either mm -hmm. individually or as a group. You can teach them something or just offer a hang or an ask me anything and say, I, I want to find out about you. Like, I want to ask a bunch of questions. So you can get them, try and get them live. If they, if these people are your fans and you saved their armpit once, yeah. they're probably excited to, like, hang out with you. Yeah, the armpit club. Well, let's say that, you know, you do a Zoom, you've got like 100,000 people and maybe 50 people show up to the Zoom. I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, or let's say that you have 150 people on your list, right? So yeah. people who are listening now, they start their free offer, they get people opting into their email list, and they offer a Zoom because they're thinking like, what do I offer everybody? Where's the party at? So people show up and it's maybe 10 people. I imagine the dialogue going on in their head is like, this is not enough people for me to say definitively, I should offer, you know, a shaving kit product because these 10 armpit fanatics that came out of the woodwork six years later are still thinking about this thing. Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think your fanatics, like if you get 10 fanatics, maybe what is that like 1% of your thousand? Yeah. Um, I think that that's a good sample. Like those okay. are the people... I think, but it's, you know, if you're going to spend money and resources to create something, right. it's always wise to float it out there, maybe, you know, more on to a larger audience, maybe it's on social media um, and find out and, you know, see what people think. 
Like, yeah. are you interested in it? I'm thinking of creating this. Are you interested? Yeah. And see how many people say yes. But your fanatics are a good, you know, will give you a good sense. And um, I I happen to love the digital product world because, I mean, I, I'm all for the, you know, the physical product world too. I buy many physical products, but yeah. in terms of creating things, there's very little risk if you, you know, created something quick and dirty that you have a good indication, but not huge indication people want. There's not a lot of risk there. You're not spending a ton of money. You can just float it out there, say who wants it, or you can give it as a free gift and see if people say, like, I would pay you for this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And okay, kind of this is the perfect time for me to go back to your laziness and, and mm-hmm. cholesterol. So Speaking of digital courses, there's good lazy and there's not so good lazy. Can you tell us a little bit about this just in life and how you see things? Yeah. So I would say that I have both in equal measure and the the bad lazy that I'm always kind of trying to get over and isn't maybe true laziness, it's more fear in pajamas, um, is about resistance. It's about being terrified of getting it wrong, like putting off something that you know you should be doing or have to do and telling yourself, I'm too lazy to do it. But really the truth is I don't know where to start or I'm just not going to get it right or I'm going to fall on my face. Uh, So a lot of that laziness is fear. It's resistance. Mm -hmm. But then the other kind that I'm very comfortable with in myself and think is, is something that might make me unusual or just a lot of people don't acknowledge in themselves um, is this this comfort, this ease with having it easy. I don't I don't locate my self-worth in working super hard. Yeah. I let you know, first of all, I I wouldn't say that I have a real work ethic in that like I set out to work hard. I'm gonna put in a hard day's work. I love going hard on work that feels easy. Yeah. But I don't like work that feels hard. Yeah. And I am, unlike a lot of people, especially women that I hear from, I am so comfortable with having my time free, blank space on the calendar. It's all I want in life is to look at the calendar and say, I have nothing today. And I know that a lot of people are super uncomfortable with that, especially women. They feel like if they're not busy, wall-to-wall busy, then they are, well, lazy and or just not not a good person or not worthy of taking up space in the world or something. I don't know. I don't relate to it because I feel so good when I have nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I actually I'm so much like you. Everybody in my friend group turns to me for delegating. Um, And, (laughs) you know, it's interesting, too, because I feel like there's some big decisions you can make, especially as a business person or a career person. Like um, I have some business friends where it's like, okay, you can make 200K a year doing nothing, or you can make a million dollars a year and like kill yourself along the way with the amount of work you're taking on. And what I'm seeing is that obviously the the million dollar entrepreneur, then they've got more overhead, they have more things. So the numbers start to kind of get interesting towards the end sometimes, sometimes not the case. It's great. Um, I don't know, like, do you have any message for people who want to play big, 
Mm -hmm. um, but they don't want to lose themselves because I know that you talk in your book about losing yourself in a toxic relationship and how that was Mm -hmm. kind of like the ultimate procrastinator move. Yes. (laughs) I think it's funny because I mean, it's not funny that you run a toxic relationship, but (laughs) it is. But I do find that heartbreak is a full-time job and it really takes you Mm. out. So, um, yeah, I would love to just hear a little bit about that. That's really good. Heartbreak is a full-time job. Yeah. Did you make that up? It's so good. Laura, you know, (laughs) I'm not the famous copywriter head honcho (laughs) at Talking Shrimp, but I'm a vibe, Laura. Yeah. You are. You're hired. (laughs) You can replace me as head honcho. Um, Yeah. So that's two different things. It's true. Like I really, I lost myself in one relationship in particular, uh, when I was in my late twenties, heading towards 30, I fell in love or made, got myself to fall in love with a married salsa instructor. And, um, because he was pursuing me and threatened to take away my free dance lessons if I wasn't with him. So for some reason, I thought that was an okay trade. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, just manipulated my mind to make it love, to turn it into love and then became obsessed with him for the two and a half years that we were together. And for sure, I was putting off, um, putting off adulthood, uh, like I didn't know if I wanted to have kids. So I, th- this was a great way of putting off that decision, being mm-hmm. with somebody who I was not, who has posed no threat of starting a family with me mm-hmm. and, um, or moving forward and also focus, putting all my focus, all my energy into this relationship made, made it so that I didn't have to think about the creative rut that I was in at work. Yeah. Like, oh, I've, you know, probably reached my peak in this job and I'm not having any good ideas right now. I'm going to throw myself entirely into this obsession with dance and with this person who is unavailable to me. And (laughs) like, I never, yes, never (laughs) even wanted to be with him. And then suddenly I'm like, you promised me a ring. Uh, (laughs) When are you going to divorce her? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was a full-time job, the heartbreak, the obsession, the chasing, all of that. Um, but when it comes to, you know, your original question about wanting to play big, but kind of at what cost, I do think that's worth considering. Mm-hmm. And I have seen it over and over. People that I've been initially jealous of, like, oh, that person just went from making one million to making four million in an hour. And yeah. then um and then for real, you know, I believe them. They're transparent about their numbers. It's a huge windfall. And then they expand the company and have to keep it up. Right. And nobody now, talks about sustaining. They talk about. No. It's very interesting. No. Yes. And, you know, they say like, what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. But I think it can also be true that what got you here doesn't necessarily even keep you here. Yeah. And so there's this scramble to keep it up. Um, like the next launch has to be $4 million in an hour or, you know, so now I have to come up with new things and make sure it's, make sure I'm offering something every month and make sure that I have, now I need 20 people on my team where before I had just one, uh, and life gets really complicated. And I think I've seen these people project a sense of ease Mm-hmm. While you can see that it's, yeah, there's no, there's no ease. It's like, look at me, I'm on a yacht. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I have a business that allows me to be on a yacht for yeah. a week. I'm like, well, good for you. You know, so like working as an employee for, you know, with a 401k would also allow you a week's vacation or yeah. maybe two. Um, so that's not that big a deal. You know? yeah. I just, I just think you do have to consider at what cost and maybe like maybe where you are is really good. It doesn't. Yes. You know, it's a, it doesn't always have to be more, more, more yeah. um, to make your life better. And the chances are when it comes to money and when it comes to making these huge sums where you think, why does this person even need to work another day in their life if they made $4 million? Well, your needs, even if your business doesn't expand that way, your needs, your spending usually will go up accordingly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the more I have, uh, I have never been really close to living um, beneath my, below my means, no matter how much I make, it's always like just basically matching what I am allowed to spend or, or surpassing it. So aren't you in New York? Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I I get it. I actually just moved from New York to um, Florida. Oh, it's a big move, obviously. Yeah. But um, my life here feels so different because in New York, and I think that geography is so underrated as a topic mm. for people. Yeah. Like where you are has such a big influence. Um, people talk so much about mindset and your mindset. It's like you can't mindset your way out of a tumbleweed going past your front door and nowhere to go. <laughs> you need community and connection, right? So, yeah. or in New York, it's like um, I felt very much like, wow, this is so much fun or growing up in LA, so much fun. But what I also felt is I'm never going to get ahead here. Mm-hmm. Um, and moving to Florida, I've been buying real estate and oh. it's really inspired me because I'm in an area where properties are affordable and pretty much anyone at any level of income over probably 50 K could save enough to buy something in, you know, Miami, West Palm beach. There's different places that I have been looking, but I mean, the point being, it feels so different to live somewhere that is helping me get mm. ahead. Um, and and you're also pointing out something interesting, which is like it doesn't have to be more, more, more. I think that because our cells, like on a natural science level, want to grow, like, right? Like yeah. things are splitting. I'm not a science girl, obviously, <laughs> but, you know. Um, Mitochondria. Yeah, like, holy shit, that's <laughs> not the topic, but thank God. But I will say that I feel like, you know, our, our cells naturally want to shed every seven years, right? Our skin cells um, are constantly duplicating, growing, changing. So I think it's natural for the human experience to want to grow. Like it's so Darwinistic, like humans want to survive, yeah. we'll fight for our life, cells will survive. So it's like, we always want to become more and more and more. Um, yeah. And sometimes it gets out of hand when it comes to like your career, your business, your life vision. You you don't realize that the more, more, more is just the serenade of avoiding real self-acceptance and actual self-love, which is you're enough right here. You can accept yourself right here. You don't need anything else. Um, it's interesting you also talk about like people's success and sustaining it. Yeah. I love what you said about like what get what got you there won't keep you there. Like I've never yeah. heard that. And that's so great. <laughs> you can TM that, Laura. I'm t- I will. Heartbreak and heart, is heartbreak is a full time. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> um, but I, I write in my book about time zones and how like, you know, 
it's like success happens in time zones. Like I'm in LA and it's not time for me to eat at 3 p.m. You're in New York at, at 6 p.m. You're thinking about dinner. It's like people mm-hmm. live in different time zones and success happens in different time zones of your life. And I think sometimes people just think like, I just had this happen. So now it's going to keep happening versus, oh, what a blessing. Let me take this and and have a different season, be in a transition. Um, what have you learned about transitions? Because you came out of um, a really tough relationship. You probably did a lot of self-reflection. Um, yeah. Like what message do you have for people who like you made a career pivot in your forties mm-hmm. um, about transition? Because I think that the truth of the matter is we're always in transition. And, you know, as a career expert, I'm hearing everybody say you should love your career. And I'm like, that's a crazy expectation to put on everybody. Mm-hmm. Love is a very strong, why don't you super like your career? And so uh-huh. it's annoying, just like your partner that you love, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's, that's more real. So, um, what message would you have for everyone or what have you learned making a pivot in your forties, especially in the entrepreneur world? Yeah. Well, I do, I have always been in pursuit of something that would make great money that I loved, that I loved so much that I wanted to do it for the rest of my life. I think my, my parents both set that standard, especially my dad who switched, who pivoted in his forties from being an uh, an engineer for the airlines to being a psychoanalyst, big pivot. And then it took him 10 years to get his PhD and actually become a a doctor. Um, But he loved his work so much that he never want he'd never wanted to stop and he'd always say this i don't want to stop working until i die and he basically didn't you know mm-hmm. he actually had one one patient or client who came to see him when he was like you know in a assisted living place for a while um so that's all to say i am for having work finding work that you super love but you're not you're right you're not going to love it all the time there are going to be ups and downs and there are going to be seasons possibly a falling out of love with it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that it's over or it could. I think that most of us will probably at some point rewrite our career, make Mm -hmm. or feel the need to. I mean, some people won't have the, I don't know, the wherewithal, the the courage, or it, it won't occur to them that they can, or they'll feel held back by what other people expect of them. But I think most of, most of us will have a season where we're like, I want to do something else or, you know, this has run its course and that's okay. Like with, you know, a lot of relationships, not every relationship lasts forever and that is okay. That doesn't mean that it failed. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, I am very much for, I think, I think it's a, it is a tough bar, it's a high expectation to go to find work that you love so much that you can feel lost in it and not, you know, not feel the hours passing and maybe forget to eat, which is something that rarely happens to me. But like when I'm in the zone, like, oh my God, I forgot to eat. Yeah, no way. I love my work that much. (laughs) No, no. It's a rarity for me, but it sometimes happens like when I'm enjoying what I'm doing so much. Um, so I am all for that, but it just, if you're not feeling that every minute of the day for the thing that you do, don't panic and think like, oh, I'm in the wrong business. Cause like, I'm no longer in love. I mean, I know so many people who have fallen out of love with their business and just need to 
I don't know, try something new or reinvigorate it with a new idea, a new message, um, just a new focus. And the great thing about the online space, like digital marketing, entrepreneurship, is that you can, you, nobody can tell you like, well, you can't do that job. You do this job. Yeah. I love that. And I, um, one thing that you're sharing that's really becoming present, and I want to ask you before we go also just about your experience writing a book, because for me, mm. it was a reckoning and an emptying and Oof. it felt like an enema. <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, one of the biggest things I've learned being in a healthy relationship now, because I've had a toxic one um, years and years ago that I never forgot, was, you know, when you're in something really great, you have so much more space mm. to be great in so many other areas. And it sounds like this like cheesy concept, but it makes sense because like we said, heartbreak is a full-time job, TM. <laughs> and, you know, knowing that, that means that when you're not busy tending to your heart, trying to fix things all the time with someone or trying to make your personal life work for you, when your love life is the easiest area of your life, it's like you're not occupied thinking about that, um, you know, whether it's that you're single or you're with someone, um, you get so much more space to do so many other things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, book writing is one of them for you. So mm -hmm. I would love to hear, like, what was your relationship with writing your book? Because I thought that I was going to have the easiest time. I was so excited. And then when I put my pen to the pad, it was like, what is happening? Me too. I like, I spent a long time in my earlier life fearing writing. Like I wanted to have some kind of career in writing, but I also didn't because I hated writing papers for school. It was agony. Deadlines were agony for me. Um, and then I found my groove. Like once, once I was in the, uh, in the space, in the online space, and making a living essentially by blogging and writing email emails after that um, that became my main form of content, like writing emails that my list loved and they made me money. I felt like I am over this thing where I don't know what to write. I am over the agony of the blank page and all of that. Like I'm a new me and writing this book is going to feel so great because it's going to pour out of me. And I actually... Like, I, th I think I listened to Gabby Bernstein say that she had, that she didn't write her book so much as channel them or download mm -hmm. them. And I heard so many people talking about downloading a book from like the I ether. literally, the channeling is like, I'm like, <laughs> I, where's the channel? I have, I'm not on that channel. <laughs> exactly. I kept like trying channeling to channel. channel. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, at, at first my book a lot of it did pour out of me when I was just kind of messing around and writing all the stories that I wanted to tell maybe and that I remembered. And I'm very good at writing what I remember. Like I don't, there's no facing the blank page. I just tell what happened. But then when it came time to shape that into a book that people would like to read that made sense to them, I had the toughest time, like the worst, I would say the worst year of my life emotionally. And I knew it was a good problem. I knew I was lucky. Like someone is paying me to write a book, but I felt like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should give back my advance. Is it worth it? This misery that I'm putting myself through, it lasted almost a full year, but especially a summer 
where mm-hmm. I was just um I blocked the whole summer off, barely did any business, any revenue generating activities. The whole summer was blocked off for book. Every day I would look at my calendar and would say book. And I would open my laptop and look at my doc, my Google doc that said book and look at the cursor for a few minutes. And then I would get up and pace and cry and um, maybe read a book, like something trashy, watch some Netflix, watch this. Re- I rewatched all of Sex in the City. Uh, I found it very comforting. Really. <laughs> and that, I mean, that was most of my summer. And you say it was like an enema for you. I remember <laughs> my friend saying to me, um, it was my friend Marie Forlio who had written a book a couple, you know, two years before and had really struggled with it and also admitted to me, like, I felt like giving back my advance, which made me feel much better. And she said, you've got a turtle head. You've got a tur- your book is a turtle head and you've got to get it out. <laughs> like you're right. So I was wishing for a book enema. Like that was all I wanted. <laughs> uh, so oh. yeah, it was a very different experience from doing the kind of writing that I'm used to doing that I feel really confident in. And my friend Susie, who um, she has a book called Let It Be Easy. So her approach to everything is like, let it be easy. And she's like, you write emails every day. Can't these just be, can't this just be those with a spine? Mm-hmm. I was like, that's a great thought, but no. It can't. I wish it could, but it cannot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I think a lot of people want to write a book and we, my experience is we live in a world where you need to have an audience, um, and all these things for traditional publishers to care about you and help you. Um, I've had some writers that I think are unicorn writers, better writers than me. And it, you know, I got a book deal. They didn't, and it doesn't make sense, um, except for the audience side. So yeah. if somebody is wanting to create an audience or wanting to get a book deal, you know, and also just book deals versus self-publishing, mm-hmm. like most of my sales come from Amazon anyway. What's your whole thought on that for everybody listening? I think that if you have a book idea in you and you don't have a platform and, you know, you don't have an audience anywhere that a publisher could look at and see, and you really want to write this book. And you feel like this book would be awesome um, for this kind of audience. Like, I know people need it. I want to get it into their hands. Or I just want to, or for me, I want to get it out there onto the page and have a thing that I wrote with a spine. I think self-publishing is a great way to go. Also, if you feel like I don't want this to take three years or four Mm -hmm. years, it can take a really long time. It's like a good two and a half years from the from when I was offered my book deal to publication and a good full, a full three years from the time I started uh, querying agents. It's a long process. And Mm -hmm. some people take longer than me. Most people do not take longer than me at anything. But um, I think if you don't want to go through that and, uh, you know, and you want to get it out there, self-publishing is great. And then you also make the, especially if you're a good marketer and feel like you can sell this, you will make money from that book mm-hmm. or it might lead to your business. It might be something that is, you know, a, they call it a glorified business card, which sounds derogatory, but it's really not. It's 
uh, a book can be an awesome business card and get you tons of leads or business or people be seen as the expert or be asked to speak. And it doesn't have to be published by traditional publishing to do that. I, on the other hand, always, you know, maybe it's at sheer, purely out of vanity and <laughs> pride. I wanted to be published and I wanted it to be by one of the big five. Yeah. And um, and that's what I went for. And that's what I got. And I'm not sorry at all. I'm really glad, you know, even though it's taken a long time, most of that's on me. I mean, a lot of it is the waiting and times when like nothing's going on and it's being edited or it's being printed and all that stuff. But, um, you know, I I like the prestige of that. It's important for me. Mm-hmm. Just as someone who always wanted to write and always wanted to have a book and has been asked, you know, when I when I've said I'm a writer over the years, has I've been asked always, oh, anything I'd know, anything yeah. I've read, what do you write? And when I was working in TV promos, um, any t- I would say I write in TV and they would say, what shows, anything I watch? And I'm like, well, if you don't skip the commercials. Um, then you might see my promos. And then, yeah, as a copywriter later and for online business clients, people would say, oh, you're a writer. What do you write? I'm like, I write copy. It's, you know, the words that go on people's websites, et cetera. And I was proud of my work, but it still felt like I wish I were saying, oh, I wrote a book mm-hmm. and it's on the shelves right now. I just have always wanted that for my own I guess, you know, we, we measure our worthiness in different ways. And I know I am not my book, but still, I want it to succeed. I yeah. would love for it to be a bestseller. Yeah, of course. I mean, who wouldn't? It's not like you write a book hoping it just goes and dies in a corner. Like, no. bestseller is definitely the move. And um, and I totally relate to that. And I think if I wrote a second book, it would probably be self-published on my end. Yeah. Because once you do this prestige thing, you're like, all right, I did it. Um. And and it's funny because if somebody says anything I would know, now you get to say tough titties. Yeah. You're going to be like, what? And you're going to be like, no, 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 that's the book. Um, (laughs) They'll be like, bless you. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I'm looking forward to that. Or if they say, you know, anything I'd know, I've never heard of you. Tough titties. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There you go. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love that for you. Um, (laughs) Well, it's been so fun to have you. And I'm curious, like, where can everybody find you, um, get the book, all that kind of jazz? Okay. So you can find me. My digital home is talkingshrimp.com. And if you are in online business or write anything for your business or like to write, I've got freebies there that you're going to love and just, you know, go down the rabbit hole. And then my book is at talkingshrimp.com slash book, or you can go right to toughtittiesbook.com, which is a little more memorable if you're looking for tough titties. So toughtittiesbook.com. You will not find any porn, no pop-ups. That's the address. That's the URL. Um, and uh, and then on Instagram, that's my main platform that I like. I am at Laura Belgray. I love that. And um, it reminds me of in uh, elementary school when White House, we'd go to whitehouse.com and not whitehouse.gov and like all the kids <laughs> Your lab would like see porn, like some genius spot <laughs> whitehouse.com. Okay, That's so brilliant.com is a safe space. Thank you, yeah. Laura. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the U-Turn podcast. And thank you again so much for our sponsors. We are here because of you and to our listeners. 
Thank you for checking out our sponsors. We always pick people and brands that we trust and we believe in. And just for listening to the show, writing your reviews on the Apple app, and just being willing to make your own U-turns. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.